the world's favorite tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through 28 days of Matthew. Uh, we are starting into uh, Matthew. Today is Matthew chapter 9. So we've already done, uh, Jesus started his ministry. He taught Matthew 5, 6, 7, uh, was all the Sermon on the Mount. And then uh, Matthew 8 yesterday was basically showing Jesus' power, that he has power over uh, demons. He has power over healing people. He has power over, over nature. He's just this, this guy with incredible power. And that theme is going to continue today. We're going to see other ways that Jesus has power. Uh, Matthew uh, uh, wrote, is, was a disciple of Jesus. He wrote this uh, gospel from his viewpoint. So he looks at it from the things that he thinks is important. And uh, the big thing for Matthew is that Jesus has power. He's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And so after the teachings, he's going to go right into this whole thing about how Jesus uh, uses his power in the world around him. So let's just see how that transpires as we continue in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town, right? So his own town, Galilee. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man, basically Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, go home. Then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. So uh, right away in verse uh, 1 in chapter 9, Jesus uh, gets out of the boat. He goes to his hometown. <clears throat> Some people bring to him a paralyzed man on a mat. And apparently he couldn't walk for himself because he's paralyzed. And uh, so we would think that the first thing that Jesus would do is to see this, this paralyzed man and say to him, hey, get up and get, rise up and walk. You know, you're healed, right? That would be what we would do, but not Jesus, because Jesus sees this as a teachable moment, right? We've got the teachers of the law nearby, and uh, Jesus notices this, and so he says something quite unexpected. Uh, he goes up to the man, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, um, there's always a... Uh, Oh, there's always an underlying theme that if somebody is sick, it's probably something that they did themselves, right? Even, even today, we see that a little bit. If someone is sick, well, I'm not sick because I lead a healthier lifestyle or, you know, I, I, do, I do these things. I take these uh, vitamins, you know, if they'd have just taken uh, CoQ10 or some of these other things, uh, you know, they would, they'd be fine. But in Jesus' day, it was very, very pervasive. Uh, that if you were sick, it was probably something that you did or your parents did or somebody did to you. It was a punishment from God that you were sick. Um, and so it, it's not far to believe or to infer that if somebody is sick, uh, that part of the reason why they're sick is because they're, they've got sin in their life. Um, there's definitely a correlation, right, between original sin and being sick. There's, we know that for sure. So Jesus 
sees this guy and instead of just healing him outright, he says, your sins are forgiven. Of course, this causes the teachers of the law to go crazy because at that point, uh, the only way that your sins could be forgiven was offer a sacrifice, right? You, we sin, but then once a year we offer a sacrifice um, at the temple or we go and make a journey to a synagogue. We offer prayers of thanks, you know, prayers of, uh, of uh, confession to God and, and God forgives our sins. But just to have Jesus out and out right come out and say, your sins are forgiven, that just didn't happen at that time. Um, so the teachers of the law, they go crazy. They're like, you, you can't forgive, you can't, you can't just come up to this guy and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. It just doesn't work that way. And Jesus says, well, now wait a minute. Which is harder? Is it harder for me to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it harder for this guy, right, this paralyzed guy, if for me to heal him and he's going to get up and walk. And they're like, oh, well, you can't do that. I mean, neither one of them is possible. You can't forgive sins and you can't make this guy get up and walk. Uh, and Jesus turns to the man and he says, uh, rise up and walk. Your sins are forgiven, you're healed, right? And so the man gets up and he goes home. And the people were absolutely amazed because not only then does Jesus show by this that he has power over, over healing, right? Which, which he'd already shown in the previous chapter. He did all these healings, right? But now he's showing that he has power to forgive sins all by himself, just by him saying, your sins are forgiven, the sins are forgiven. That is an amazing change from what the whole Old Testament and the law and the sacrificial system had shown. And this uh, very much upsets the teachers of the law because if... If Jesus has the power to forgive sins just by saying your sins are forgiven, then what is the purpose of them? What is the purpose of their ability? What is the purpose of a priest who is needed to be able to forgive sins? Because if sins can be forgiven without the power of a priest, uh, their job kind of goes away. Think about it. Um, this was something Luther talked a lot about because uh, in the early part of the Christian church, uh, somewhere around 300 or 400 years after Christ, uh, they instituted, you know, the priestly class of people. And the only way your sins could be forgiven was if a priest forgave your sins, right? Uh, it was uh, a confession absolution uh, or it was uh, during Holy Communion. Um, the only way that your sins were forgiven, that the Old Testament sacrificial system now is, is tied into the priest. And so the priests had a lot of power. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's all they had the ability to do. Uh, once you are a priest, you are a priest for life. In the Roman Catholic Church and in other, I mean, I'm, I'm not picking on them, but in other places uh, where they have priests, the only way your sins are forgiven are through a priest. Once you become a priest, you are a priest for life. You could be in jail for murder and you still have the ability to forgive people's sins because that power has been endowed upon you for life. And Luther saw this and saw how these priests were living and the things they were doing. He's like, no, we have a direct connection to God. We don't need to go through a priest, um, which was a change uh, at his time. But um, it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, who can forgive sins? And Jesus can forgive sins directly. If you, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just, will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You do not need a mediator. There is no mediator between God and man except the man, Jesus Christ. That is it. Um, and that is very much uh, a part of, 
uh, you know, the Reformation that happened 500 years ago. That was probably one of the biggest pieces of the Reformation that happened five years, 500 years ago. Uh, we can go directly to God. We don't need to have a mediator other than Jesus Christ, um, which is really wonderful, right? But we don't, uh, we don't need uh, to have a third person meeting us. We can, we can go directly to Jesus. All right, so we're going to continue on. Verse 9, this is the calling of Matthew. Uh, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. And this is the guy that's writing this gospel, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed Jesus. And when he was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So uh, this is the calling of Matthew. It's the guy that's written this gospel. Uh, he's working in the tax collector's booth, uh, just so you know, the tax collectors at that time were, they were not the, the, they were the hated people of any community because the way that Rome had set it up is that uh, it was almost like a concessionaire. Uh, we have here in Colossal Cave Mountain Park, right? We have the facility, uh, which is Colossal Cave, and then there's a gift shop in there, and there's even a restaurant there now. There's bathrooms and uh, what they do is, uh, Pima County does, is they hire somebody to come in and manage that facility. You get the concessionaire. So you pay a certain amount of money to Pima County to kind of rent that facility, but then you are free to do, uh, within you know reason, you're, you're free to do anything you can to raise money, basically, to make that profitable for you. So after you've paid Pima County, anything that comes out after that is profits to you. It's kind of a concessionaire license. Uh, and other people do this also. Well, the tax collector was a concessionaire in, in this place, right? So he was at the booth. If there was a gate, he was at the gate. He collected taxes coming in out of the city. Uh, if there wasn't, then he went around and collected taxes. Basically, he was the guy that collected the taxes. And he made an arrangement that some of those taxes would go back to, you know, to the government, and then he would keep some portion to himself. And he was if he was extremely efficient, he was an extremely wealthy guy. And uh, the more efficient he is and the more taxes he collected, uh, the more money he made and the more money the government made. And so people did, didn't like tax collectors. I mean, we don't, nobody likes the tax collector. I have never met a person and you say to them, hey, what do you do? And it's like, hey, I collect taxes. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Nobody likes the tax collector. Uh, tax collectors are hated people and so they're shunned in society. So Jesus walking along, um, sees the tax collector sitting at the booth and he calls the tax collector to be a disciple. Not somebody I would have anticipated. I'm not even sure that the disciples that were following Jesus at that time uh, would have been happy that Jesus called a tax collector. I'm sure they mumbled to themselves, what in the world is Jesus doing calling a tax collector? That doesn't seem right. Um, but Jesus did. And then he goes over to, to Matthew's house and has dinner with him and the other tax collectors uh, and uh, Scripture says other sinners, you know, other outcasts, other people who have been shunned by society, who are doing things that society said this is not right. Um, 
it's an important point that Jesus has come for sinners. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to remember in your life that part of your mission is to love the sinner, love the outcast, even go and maybe associate with them, maybe even become friends with them. That is a very, very different way than we as humans naturally divide ourselves, right? We like people who are like us. We like people who are upright. We like people in, the, in society are considered to be great people. Uh, but Jesus comes for the sinner. Jesus comes for the people that maybe aren't uh, loved by society. So, I mean, think of who our society hates today or who society thinks is a bad person today. Uh, and if you associate with them and society says, I can't believe you're associating with them, um, wear that as a badge of honor because that's what Jesus came. He came for people who are outcasts, who are lost, who are sinners, which is all of us. But we have this way in society of, um, especially in the political realm, right? Uh, I'm, uh, if, you, uh, if you associate or if somebody associates with you politically, uh, then you can be cast uh, as, as having the same views as that person politically. And, and uh, that, that is not true. That's called um, triangulation. That's called uh, guilty, guilt by association. Um, you are not guilty because Christ deems you not guilty through the power of his death and resurrection on the cross and the fact that he's purchased you and bought you and placed you in the kingdom, which means you can go anywhere in this world. You can love anybody in this world. You can, and it's easier said than done, but uh, by the fact that you are an ambassador for Jesus, you can love anybody. You can help anybody. Even the people that, are, that, that society would say are horrible people um, and that you shouldn't even touch, right? And who are the people uh, in society today that, that are kind of like, uh, you know, I, I, 10 years ago I could have told you who it was or 20 years ago. I don't know who it is today. I mean, today it might be Christians for crying out loud. But like who is it that society says, and everybody agrees, that's an evil person, right? I, I suppose killing an animal, you know, killing a... Uh, you know, going on an African safari and killing or, or, or uh, you know, throwing plastics into the ocean, you know, that, that's evil people. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I can't even think of, of who we are, you know, who it is, but, but Jesus calls us to love. And if you associate with that, those people, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It means that you are an ambassador for Jesus loving that person. And the man, the world tries to use those relationships to, against you, um, and, and, you know, millennials particularly, um, this guilt by association is big on them. Uh, they don't, they, for some reason, they, uh, they don't want to have, you know, the world die and they want to love animals. They don't want to eat meat. Um, all these different things that they do because that's the right thing to do. And if you don't do those things, you're an evil person. Uh, and yet, um, you know, Jesus says we're all evil. And uh, we need to love everybody, no matter who they are or what they do. And uh, so that's what we're called to do. Anyway, so Jesus is, calls Matthew, and uh, we're going to continue on. Because Jesus is now going to talk about one of my favorite topics, verse 14. Then John's disciples, John's disciples came to him and said, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? 
Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will, take, will be taken from them and they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making it tear even worse. Neither do people put new wines into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So at the time of Jesus, fasting uh, was something that people did to show that they were right with God. We saw that earlier in, in Matthew. Um, so what are the things that we do to show that we're right, for, you know, right with God? Like if somebody were to look at you and say, um, do you do godly things? What are the godly things that you do? Well, I go to church, right? I pray. Uh, I read scripture. I listen to Christian radio. You know, I, uh, uh, some people might even say, I vote with this particular uh, party or I vote with this particular party. Um, the things that you do. Well, at the time of Jesus, one of the things that godly people did was fast. Uh, now, I've talked before about how fasting has some incredibly good medical benefits and that I personally fast. Uh, that your body runs, um, uh, when you're fasting, your body switches from running from glucose and it switches to running on fat. Fat actually has some incredible benefits in your body. When you fast, uh, you run off of fat. It, it increases human growth hormone. Uh, it, it boosts your immunity system. I mean, there's all sorts of great things that happen when you fast. The greatest one, of course, is that your, your mind, your brain, actually runs better off of fats than it does off of glucose. So you get a little bit of a clearer brain. Okay, that's the medical benefits of fasting. Uh, and people, I think, have known this pretty much you know, throughout time, and so people have used fasting for various reasons. But at the time of Jesus, the reason why people fasted wasn't necessary for all the medical benefits and all that sort of thing. The reason why people fasted was to show that they were right with God, right? It was a, it was a thing that people did ritualistically to show that they were in a good relationship with God. They listened to Christian radio. They go to church. They read that. I mean, it was basically one of those things. And so the, the disciples of John come up to Jesus and they say, well, why aren't your disciples fasting? Everybody else fasts to show that they're right with God, um, but you are not fasting. And Jesus is like, well, why do they need to do anything to show that they're right with me? I'm right here with them. And it is much more important right now in their life that they listen to, their, to my teachings, that they see how I do things. I am uh, the bridegroom and why would they fast and mourn when I'm right here? They don't need to do it. Uh, and so I don't know if that's, you know, made the, the Pharisees and John's disciples happy or not, but Jesus was teaching an important lesson, which was uh, all these things that we do that we think are necessary to be godly people, right? Even fasting. Um, it is more important to be a godly person. It is more important to be in a relationship with Jesus than it is to do all these other things that show the world that you're in a relationship with Jesus, but maybe you're not uh, in a relationship with Jesus, or maybe your relationship with Jesus isn't that strong. It is much more important to do the things that build that relationship with Jesus than it is to do those things to prove to the world that you're in a relationship with Jesus. It's a slight it's a slight variation, right? But you're gonna, you'll, we all meet people, right, that do things um, that, uh, you know, to show that they're in a right relationship with God, but, you know, their heart is bitter or cold or whatever. Um, not very often you meet people like this uh, because when you dig into God's word, it changes you. When you go to church, it changes you. When you 
uh, listen to Christian music, you know, fills you up. I mean, all these things that we do, uh, and we do them and they lift us up and they help fill us up. And I mean, so they're good things, but every once in a while you'll meet somebody that does them simply because they want to do them to show the world that, you know, that they're godly people. Uh, and God knows your heart. God knows your heart better than you do. And uh, just doing those things doesn't necessarily make you a godly person if you are not in a uh, in the kingdom, right? That's the most important thing is being in the kingdom and having that relationship that God is your father, you are his precious child, and getting that relationship first and everything else kind of falls into place. But if that is not right, then uh, then no matter what you're doing to try to show that you're in a godly godly life, it doesn't work. But I mean, but God's God's word is is I mean, I'm not saying don't do those things. You should you should pray. You should read God's word because those things will help you build uh, and strengthen your relationship, or strengthen your faith. It'll help you live your life. I mean, these are all good things. Don't get me wrong, but they're not the only thing. The most important thing: seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then everything else will be added unto you. All right, so now we're going to go to verse 18. Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. While Jesus was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him and so did the disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched him on the edge of his cloak. She said to her, if I just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus turned and saw her, said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and got her up. News of this spread throughout all the region. So, man, two different miracles going on here. First is the one, um, and they're both uh, fascinating, fascinating miracles. Um, the one is the woman who just touches Jesus, uh, and she says, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. Uh, and then the other is this girl who's presumed to be dead. Jesus said, she's not dead, and he lifts her up, and she lives. So two different miracles. Uh, so we'll do the first one first. The, the touching of Jesus... Uh, if, if I just touch Jesus, I'll be healed. Um, man, that raises so many fascinating questions, right? Uh, would she, could she just touch the garment and be healed at that point? I think in a different gospel, actually, he does. He says, I felt the power coming out of me because someone touched me. And he looks around, who was it? And they said, we can't tell who it is. There's so many people here, Jesus. But the woman knows who it was, and she comes and she confesses it was me, but I was healed. Jesus says, you're healed. Um, it raises an interesting question, that particular one. Can you be healed by just simply touching Jesus, right? Uh, is there power in having this encounter with Jesus, with just you and Jesus and, um, and the power of knowing that Jesus can heal you? Uh, now, that is a question for the ages, and I'm not going to answer it, <laughs> but it's an interesting question um, because, first of all, we know that the body itself has some amazing healing capabilities, right? 
that's why they have to do these double-blind control trials with placebos because people, if they think they're getting a drug that's going to heal them, the amazing thing is, is that our bodies will sometimes believe that we've been healed simply because our body has this amazing ability to heal. Uh, and if you talk to any doctor, they will tell you this. But part of the healing process is the medicine, right? The Boy, doctors are going to change. We're going to talk about that at some point. But doctors diagnose you. Okay, you have this condition, and I'm going to give you this treatment. This is the treatment that we do for this condition. So I'm going to give you these drugs, or I'm going to give you this therapy, and I'm going to monitor you, and then hopefully you're going to get better. But part of that is also the belief of the person getting the treatment that this is going to help them. And doctors will say that is also an important part of the healing process is this belief that this is going to heal you. Um, I remember uh, not too long ago, I hiked the Grand Canyon and I, I fractured my shoulder and it hurt while I was in the Grand Canyon. By the time I got out, it hurt, but I, but I didn't know, you know what was going on. I talked to my doctor. He says, why aren't you going to a special therapist? So I went, and like two weeks later, I finally made an appointment, went to a guy and he took an x-ray and he goes, yep, you fractured your shoulder, but it's healing and you're going to be fine. And uh, just keep a little bit of motion, you know, unmobilized for a little bit of time and then come back in six weeks and we'll take another x-ray and see if you're healed. I mean, the body has the ability to heal um, by in and of itself. And that was an eye-opening thing for me because I've always, we live in a world where we think that the only way that you can be healed from any sickness or disease is to go get the diagnosis or the treatment and then uh, take the, the drugs uh, you know, and then take other drugs and then take other drugs. And all of a sudden you get these drugs interreacting. You have no idea what that is. And you meet people that um, could be on a huge regimen of all sorts of drugs to try to, you know, heal all sorts of things. And, uh, uh, and I'm not, not knocking the medical profession uh, because they are wonderful and they, they do diagnose and they do treat. But I do want to say just this one thing, and that is the body does have and innate, we were, when God created us as humans, uh, he did create this incredible ability for the body to heal with a lot of sorts of things. Um, and part of it is simply uh, letting the body do that, all right? And uh, I'm, I don't want to get in trouble with the medical profession because I love the medical profession. I myself go to a doctor. I take drugs periodically for different things. There's no question about it. Um, but the body itself has the ability to heal. So when Jesus went around healing, right, um, and he laid his hands on somebody and said, you're healed, how much of that was the placebo effect and how much of that is the Son of God effect? And I don't know, but he did tell his disciples to go out and heal also. Um, how much of that is just, you know, conditions that people had that they could be healed by simply somebody praying over them? How many of it was a medical diagnosis that the only way they're going to be healed was if somebody you know, injected drugs into their body or something like that. I mean, these are, these are things that, that we have no, I mean, we just don't really have a way of even quantifying it. It's just an interesting question. Um, and I'm probably, you know, freaking some of you out because of this, but, and I, you know, but I just, these are things that I think about, right? I think about what is the power of God in my life? You know, how far does that reach? Um, and then, and then the next one is, uh, is Jesus goes into the synagogue's leader's house and she says, the girl's not dead. Uh, and he lifts her up, you know, I mean, was she dead? Uh, was she not dead? And Jesus said she wasn't dead. She was just asleep. And then, you know, he lifts her out. Um, 
and uh, did, did Jesus heal her from a disease by which she had gone asleep? Uh, or was just would she already healed, but they thought she was dead? You know, we don't really know. You could look on the internet and find out when is a person clinically dead, right? This is very morbid. Ah, I don't want to go here. This is very morbid. But um, in the 60s, they came up with this thing called, well, if you have no brain activity in your brain, then you're brain dead, right? But your body could still be living. But the, the classical definition of death is basically your lungs aren't working, your heart's not working. And over you know, a very short period of time, if your heart's not working, your lungs are not working, then it's going to starve your brain, your brain's going to die. So, but um, you know, there, there really is no good definition as to actually when death occurs. Because even if your heart uh, gives out and your brain gives out, or your heart gives out and your lungs give out, there is a period of time where your brain still might be working. Um, and uh, it's not going to work for a very long time. It might be a very short amount of time. Uh, I've been around, you know, death. I've seen, you know, the stories of people when death occurs, like one last breath, and then it's and then they're dead, right? But, but you know, and then you, you the one they they always do it on the TV is like, dee dee dee, you know, they have the heartbeat monitor, and then it's dee. Well, that's the heartbeat. But when do the lungs give out? When do the when does the brain give out? And these are just interesting questions. But Jesus, yeah, Jesus had power over death, right? We know that because he raised Lazarus from the death. But here he just, he basically said she's not dead. He correctly diagnosed her and got her up and she lived for a period of time longer than that. Um, and uh, man, it raises an interesting question about, about medicine and medical. Um, I, I had here a note. Um, my grandfather uh, had a brother who was in a wheelchair and uh, his name was Tommy. I think his name was Tommy. My grandfather's been dead for... A long time probably 25 years but um, he uh, uh, I'm told and I don't remember if my grandfather told me this or some other people told me this but I'm told that uh, Tommy who was in a wheelchair wanted to go to a faith healer and so my grandfather and his brother took Tommy in the wheelchair to the faith healer and the faith healer couldn't heal Tommy and so he remained in a wheelchair, but the faith healer said, well, your faith isn't strong enough because if your faith was strong enough, you could be healed. That, my friends, is a horrible, horrible thing to tell somebody that your faith isn't strong enough. That if your faith was strong enough, you could be healed. But because your faith isn't strong enough, you're not going to be healed. That God is punishing you because your faith isn't strong. Um, that is completely false. That is a completely false thing. Um, the, uh, it's false for a couple, couple reasons. First of all, there's, there's two types of faith, right? That we have, there's justification, there's sanctification, justification. There's nothing within us that we do to become justified before God. I mean, that is, that is clear. God loves us and he brings us into the kingdom and has nothing to do with our sinful being because we we're so sinful we can't even bring ourselves into the kingdom. It has to be Jesus that saves us, 100% of his work. But then he calls us to grow in our faith, right? He calls us to build our root system. He calls us, and that's a different kind of faith. And um, you know, to tell somebody that they're not saved or to tell people you know, that their faith isn't strong enough is a horrible thing to, t to burden to put on somebody. Um, but there are times, I believe, when Jesus does come and do miraculous things in people's lives. 
And uh, I've heard stories about people that through their faith, you know, their deep faith or whatever, they call for God for miracle. And in some instances, God will do amazing things in their life. And this is a very complicated, dangerous subject. Um, and uh, I think I think that it's more important to be in a right relationship with God and to build your faith. Um, but and I don't know if it, it, when you test God and you say, God, you know, I. I want you to heal me, and if you don't heal me, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. I mean, those are dangerous paths to go down. But, um, but I do know that, uh, that our faith does continue to grow throughout our life, uh, and when it gets deeper, uh, we begin to see more clearly what the will of God is, not only for our life, but for the kingdom, um, and that I think God transforms and changes the things that you pray for and the things that you ask for uh, and the ways that you step out in faith in the kingdom. So I'll just leave it at that. Uh, let's see. Verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on me, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him and he asked him, Do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and he said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. He was mute. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Uh, but the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So Jesus heals this blind man. He heals a mute person. Uh, and the Pharisees, they, uh, they don't like this at all, that Jesus has this power because they are the ones that channel God, not Jesus. And um, so they, they've already now, in their heads, started to say, how do we get rid of this guy? Because too much of a threat to our way of life. Uh, because if people can get healed, if people can have this channel to God through Jesus, then they don't need us. And that's a very scary thing. <clears throat> so Jesus, again, showing his power. He heals. Uh, and then we go to verse 35. Uh, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send more workers to the harvest field. The people are harassed and helpless, and Jesus can help them from their harassment and their helplessness. Jesus can um, love them, he can teach them, he can heal them. Uh, he can heal them from little diseases, he can heal them from big diseases. Uh, and we'll find out tomorrow that Jesus sends out his disciples to start doing the things that Jesus has done, teaching and healing. And uh, right here Jesus is saying, um, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few because Jesus can't do it all. He can't go everywhere throughout the whole entire region and heal everybody. He's got to multiply his ability to do that. And so we're going to find out that Jesus multiplies his disciples to go out and do these things. And, um, and so what, what he sends the disciples to go out and do is to heal every disease and sickness and to be with people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So that's, that's kind of where this starts for tomorrow. 
is that Jesus is going to mobilize his disciples. They've seen him do it now. Now he's going to send them out and do it, uh, which is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So uh, we'll kind of leave it there because tomorrow we're going to dig into this a whole lot deeper, you know, what it is that the disciples did when they went out. Um, and then, of course, the question after that is what should we be doing when we go out? That is, that is the million-dollar question. And um, we're going to struggle with that a little bit. So uh, thanks for joining me this morning on this one. Uh, I pray it's beneficial to you. Uh, I, pray it's, I pray that it's something you enjoy. Um, I, uh, it is kind of weird speaking to a camera and uh, knowing that you're out there, but I'm speaking to you. My heart is with you. Uh, my prayers go with each of you. This is a difficult time, uh, but it is a wonderful time. It's a very challenging time, but it's a time for opportunity. So would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, uh, thank you for your power uh, in the world that you lived in and the world that you live in today. Lord, um, we pray that you would continue to strengthen our faith. Help us to see your will in our life. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Uh, be with our world today as we continue to struggle with this virus. Uh, help us to find a cure or a way to get away out of this, uh, this quarantine. These things we pray because you are an awesome, amazing God and that you love us.